Welcome to the BC Messenger. My name is Steve Hall. It's May 2023, and this is episode number 10. Real science, real Bible, real history, and real world. And we are hoisting the sails for another adventure on the high seas of real science, real Bible, real history, and real world. If you get our show notes as an email, you'll see a beautiful painting there of a ship, and uh, that'll come into play more as the episode goes on here today. I'm here with my wife, Jennifer, and we host this podcast. Greetings, friends. Good to be with you again for another month as we delve into some interesting waters. Yes. Our work here at The Biblical Chronologist specializes in demonstrating the historicity of the ancient Old Testament. The Bible is our primary data source as we seek to correlate biblical history with extra-biblical data in a fashion which is both intellectually satisfying and true to the text of Scripture and the data of science. Now, Jen, this sure does get us into some interesting waters, uh, some unexpected territory, as the pursuit of truth always does. That's for sure. God is the author of all truth, and he is always surprising us as we navigate out into the waters of the deep and follow after him. So this month, we have an interesting lineup of content for you. First of all, uh, we will be discussing an overview of the missing millennium discovery. Now, last month, we gave the story of the missing millennium discovery. This month, we're going to talk more about some of the details related in with how does this work. And we are also going to share some recent conversations we've had on Twitter and how this discovery and this data-rich approach can make a difference in talking with unbelievers. And then uh, we will have a featured video link for you. We have, I've got questions, a quick question from a listener following up on the chronology discovery. We'll be sharing our upcoming itinerary for the Truth in Time ministry, a quote of note about longevity, aging 101, about vitamin deficiency diseases, and some real content to chew on there. And then Helen's View this month will be an interview, a behind the scenes, of course, which is what Helen's View always is. But she's going to be interviewing our very own Steve here in the studio and sharing a little bit from behind the scenes from his life. And that was fun. Maybe the most boring interview you've ever heard. but Definitely not boring. You'll enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) So let's dive right in. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, chronology is the backbone of history? Well, that is a very true statement. Chronology truly is the backbone of history. Biblical chronology is foundational to Christian apologetics. It is essentially impossible to defend biblical historicity apart from a true and accurate biblical chronology. In other words, you can't just wander around in history looking for patterns, seeing something in archaeology and saying, oh, oh, what does that remind you of? That doesn't work. Correct dates are essential to a correct understanding of the past. Now, let me take a second and define chronology. A very simple dictionary definition of chronology is the arrangement of events and dates 
in the order of their occurrence. That is so vital to finding things in history. Again, you can't just go finding some artifact somewhere and saying, wow, that looks like such and such, and then build a whole case around it. That is not the proper way to find things in history. Chronology is the backbone. Now, last month we explained how Dr. Ardsma came to the realization decades ago that a full millennium had been accidentally dropped from traditional biblical chronology. Now, if you haven't heard that episode, that's the last one we did, number nine, it really does set the stage for this month's discussion. This month, we will be discussing how this works out biblically. How could a full millennium have accidentally been lost from biblical chronology? So we understand what you're explaining to us here, that chronology is the backbone of history, but now you're saying that a full millennium has accidentally been dropped from biblical chronology, that this is Dr. Ardsma's hypothesis and discovery going back uh, many years now. Right. So if chronology is the backbone of history and we have a full millennium accidentally dropped from biblical chronology, the perceptive listener at this point will surely be thinking, if this is true... It would really add up to a major biblical and historical mess. Right. And in fact, that is the case. Yes. Of course, the idea of the missing millennium discovery is not well known yet. And that's partly why we are here in this work. And so the world only knows about the mess, especially the unbelieving world. And boy, do they know about it. Now, many Christians are very comfortable believing what they have always believed, and they're very unaware of the fact that the early Old Testament events really do appear to have been falsified. And I know we don't like that, we don't like to hear that, but we have to face reality. Now, let's illustrate this point, and to quickly illustrate the point of the mess that we're in, we're going to share some Twitter conversations that we have recently had. Um, these are some examples of tweets of correspondence that we've had showing the problems that biblical historicity does face. So, Jen, why don't you share with us some of the comments that people, some of the tweets people have given to us, and then, and what we'll do is go ahead and give you the answer as to how we responded to show you how this works. Yes. Okay. So. These tweets are going to illustrate how, just how well aware the unbelieving world is of the problems with the ancient biblical accounts as things currently stand in um, our modern world. <clears throat> okay, here's the first one. Okay. Somebody says, Israel has been searching for archaeological evidence for the Exodus for decades, and they have found nothing. The Exodus story would have left a massive all caps, massive footprint on the region and neighboring regions in a multitude of ways if it had happened, but we find nothing because it didn't happen. Our reply to this comment was, well, you're right. It would have left a massive footprint, and in fact it did, at the correct chronological date. Everyone has been looking in the wrong millennium, where it will certainly not be found. Now that was our comment back. Now. You know, I, I thought about this, and here's an, here's an illustration of this very thing. It's kind of like trying to demonstrate to someone 
2,000 years from now that the Black Death, which we've all heard about, so 2,000 years down the road, we were telling someone the Black Death really did occur in history, causing the death of millions of people, but trying to say that it happened in 2020. And then trying to prove it by saying, and I think it was called COVID. Right. Well, (laughs) obviously that's not the case. And so, but if you get back to the 1300s, then, and if it's a true story, then you will uncover it. So you can see how chronology is the backbone of history. You can't just find an event somewhere and say, oh, this looks like it, or, or try to prove something to someone without correct chronology. Our second tweet is saying, uh, funny how the, quote, worldwide, unquote, flood managed to miss Egypt completely, not to mention China, India, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And our reply to that was, the flood happened 3520 BC. It did not miss Egypt. The traditional date for the flood, approximately 2500 BC, is wrong. And the flood cannot be found in history anywhere near that date. And again, if we go back to 2500 BC and we do find civilizations thriving, right? The, the traditional date, we, we find that these civilizations really were doing, they were alive and well. When there was supposed to be a worldwide flood, well, something is, is wrong. And as Christians, we have to admit that. We've Some, got to reckon with it. Right. Something's wrong with the chronology or our tale is a false one, a tall tale. So it's one of the two. Right. You can get the date corrected. And in fact, uh, civilizations go missing all over the place. Right. Um, okay. Third tweet. Somebody says, I can state with absolute certainty that the flood as recorded in the Bible never happened. It is wrong at every level. There is no evidence supporting the flood and mountains of evidence disproving it. Our reply to that was agreed that there is no evidence for the flood at the traditional dates. However, there is evidence of the flood if you look at the corrected dates. And if you realize that it was a hemispherical, quote, flood, not a cataclysmic event as some propagate. Next, someone says there were never two plus million Hebrews living in Egypt as slaves. Moses wasn't a real person and they didn't wander the Sinai for 40 years. They are just stories. Our reply to that comment was... When the Israelites exited Egypt, the old kingdom collapsed. Their wanderings in the central Negev left a trail of pottery. Dr. Gerald Arzma has identified at least six of the 11 stops from Egypt to Sinai. So you can see that we are trying to take a data-rich approach, not an emotional approach that says, repent, you unbeliever. But instead, instead it says, uh, here's some... Here's some data. Right. All right. Number uh, five, somebody says, and we are very distinctly missing evidence for millions of Jewish people walking through the desert for 40 years, and the record-keeping Egyptians never mentioned the plagues. Our reply was, the whole Egyptian society fell into chaos as a result of the plagues. It was the collapse of the old kingdom of Egypt. At the corrected date the end of the old kingdom, we very distinctly have evidence for millions of people in the wilderness. Archaeologists call them, quote, mysterious, a mysterious people. All right. The final one we're going to share here is someone says the walls of Jericho 
quote, walls of Jericho, collapsed during the Egyptian invasion of the 16th century BCE. There were no Israelites involved in it, and there's no evidence that the town was even inhabited at that time. Our reply was, well, you're correct. Jericho was not inhabited at the traditional date. At the new date, around 2400 BC, a walled city at Jericho was destroyed. The archaeologists report that the wall was destroyed by fire at this date, which is what the Bible reports in Joshua 6.24. So those are just, again, some examples that uh, we wanted to give you there of how, you know, when you have a data-rich approach, as you said a minute ago, then these are the kind of answers that you can give to folks who do not believe, and they don't believe for some good reasons, and we're giving them real answers. So the missing millennium hypothesis began, as we shared last month, with Dr. Ardsma realizing that the fall of Jericho, the fall of Ai, or Ai as some say, and Noah's flood all could be seen in archaeology as happening a thousand years earlier than the traditional date. And so much more has come to light since then. So archaeology works beautifully a thousand years earlier. But what about the biblical text? How could we arrive at these earlier dates? Because, as we said earlier, as Steve said in the opening section of the podcast today, we are seeking to correlate biblical history with extra-biblical data in an intellectually satisfying fashion. So we have to have this work out biblically, textually, as well as in the archaeology. And, you know, you, would, you might think, it seems like you sure would have to do some fancy footwork there with the biblical text or some backflips or dancing around all kinds of issues textually to be able to say, you know, there's a there's an extra millennium here. But interestingly, as we're going to be explaining, that is actually not the case. Right. So let's get back to the textual question. How could there be a missing millennium in the text? Where or how do we find this missing millennium in the text? Now, when we're dealing with chronology, numbers are of utmost importance. That's what chronology is. It's fixing dates on a timeline. So it's going to be very number-oriented. Right. Now, the problem is when you get to the text and you open up your Bible, you don't find passages that say in the year of, you know, 2400 B.C., this happened. It just doesn't do that. It doesn't give us that kind of dating. It would sure be nice. It, it would be nice. But, but, but ancient texts preserved through time are not able to give us right. um, a history, um, a perspective of looking back like sure. we have now, of course. So since the text does not tell us dates, then we have to calculate the dates for the biblical events. And calculating dates, of course, uses numbers, which are also given to us by the biblical text. There are various numbers given to us all through the Old Testament, which are used to understand how much time lies between certain events, how many years before Christ various things happened, and so on. And this discipline of biblical chronology is surprisingly difficult in places, obscure in places. We don't have a nice lineup of numbers that we just add up and do the simple math, but there's a lot that goes into it. Um, Many various texts are brought to bear upon the questions of where these events and when took place in history. 
Now, there is one key passage, one main verse that so much Old Testament chronology depends upon, and that is 1 Kings 6.1. Everything before the time of Samuel and David hinges upon this verse. It's, it's really pretty amazing. Yeah, it's very surprising to learn that. Right. That we have one text. As far as chronology that goes. That when we are looking in history for these events, we go back to this one text. Yeah. And what is that text? Well, let me read it to you. First Kings 6, 1 Kings 6.1 says, And it came to pass, and here's our number, it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. And then the verse carries on. But that's that's the passage. That's the, the number we're dealing with in biblical chronology in it the Old Testament. It says that the fourth year of Solomon's reign was 480 years 480 after they came years. out of Egypt. Right. That is a key link. And yeah, again, this verse is the key biblical chronological link that's used to determine the date of the Exodus. This is the only way, as Jennifer said, that we have to biblically discern the proper dates, proper dates of the Exodus and so on. It gives us that amount of time, 480 years, from Solomon back to Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. And what's interesting, too, is that there's no parallel passage uh, to compare this to. Many of the Kings and Chronicles and Samuel books have parallel accounts happening, and you can compare one account to the other, and that is not the case here. This number is given one time. Right. You may see a description of how many soldiers a king has in one passage, and yet in another parallel passage, it's giving the same account, but has a different number. So you you can discern. So Solomon's reign is typically calculated to have begun around 970 B.C., Thus, using this 480 years that's given to us in 1 Kings 6 1, this places the Exodus around 1450 BC. That's the traditional date. That's what we've always believed. However, modern archaeology of Egypt and Canaan at this time is completely incompatible with this biblical record. It simply, it just simply is. In addition, there's an internal conflict going on in the biblical record as well, which is interesting to note. The Bible lists consecutive events between the Exodus and Solomon's reign, and they, when you calculate them up, total at least 600 years. So right there is another piece of evidence in favor of the fact that something's amiss. So we have an external conflict and an internal conflict within the text itself. Right. And Here, you know, in the communications department for the biblical chronologist, we do a lot of reading um, about other people's ideas about the ancient Old Testament events. We try to stay informed about research from other groups and and proposals um, from other researchers. And so we want to do this so that we can effectively educate and inform people about what we're doing here at the biblical chronologist. But any time, you know, I, I mean, any time that we begin to read about the dates being calculated before Samuel and David, 1 Kings 6.1 is always yeah. brought to bear on the question. It comes up right at the forefront. It's truly a key text. So having this awareness 
and having this information that there are major problems with the traditional dates of these biblical events and that the dates of these early events all hinge upon this one number, then this naturally leads us to the question, well, could there be a problem with this number? I know many Bible believers are uncomfortable with this kind of thing, uh, but we do have to face reality if we ever hope to get to the truth. And it's important to understand that numerical troubles and discrepancies do pop up from time to time in, in these books of Kings, Chronicles. These are very ancient texts. Uh, there are some well-known examples of copy errors in these manuscripts. Right. And perhaps textual criticism, copy errors is something we could talk about on another episode. I learned recently that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered uh, some decades ago now, that they were the most ancient manuscripts to have been discovered, predating, I think, by a thousand years, the extant manuscripts that we had at the time. And in that, some numerical corrections were able to be made in the published Bibles of the day. The Dead Sea Scrolls brought to light uh, where an extra zero had maybe been added in the number of horses or how many men were slain in a battle, etc. And that was enlightening to me. Yes, it definitely is when you begin to look into these things. So this text, 1 Kings 6.1, is the text where the missing millennium was proposed by Dr. Ardsma decades ago. Dr. Arzma proposed that the original number here was in actuality not 480, but it should be 1,480. And so there you have the missing millennium. One digit in the Old Testament in that one verse, 1 Kings 6.1. And so by proposing this textual correction, all the major events from Samuel on back now get pushed back a thousand years. If in your mind you can picture a timeline and the traditional dates on that timeline, 1450 BC, 2450, push everything back 1,000 years, consistently, everything. This puts Jericho and I around 2400 BC, the Exodus around 2450 BC, Abraham around 3000 BC, and the flood around 3520 BC. And, and again, if you're familiar with biblical dates and you've studied this all your life, this is, this is a huge leap outside the box of tradition. And so it's, it takes a lot to, to be able to come to terms with this. But the question is, does it work, right? The question is, can we find the events in history if we do make this one correction. So that's what we're saying. This is where the missing millennium took place biblically, in the, in the text, I mean. And when we place these events at these proper dates, we do find them in real world history. And this is such good news for Christianity. This is, this is huge. It sure is. To, to give us confidence in these Old Testament accounts. I think there are many biblical scholars uh, today who would be overjoyed to be able to make a correction to solve one problem. Yeah. You know, the wilderness wanderings or the flood or the conquest of Canaan. Take your pick. I mean, if somebody can demonstrate a solution to one of these problems, they would be overjoyed. But this proposed 
textual correction solves such a host of problems. And although it is a leap outside of the traditional box of the timeline, so often the biggest problems can have the simplest solution, but we right. have to go back and question even our premises. And when when we do this and we look at this new solution, which has been around for quite a few decades, but is not well known yet, right. uh, we see such harmony that emerges. And right. it's very exciting for the Bible believer. It's wonderful to be able to say, it sure is. Uh, here is where Mount Sinai is. Here is where Moses stood. Here is where the Israelites camped. And here is a list of evidence backing it up. Well, just like our Twitter conversations a little bit ago. I mean, people have real questions. There's real serious questions to be dealt with when it comes to Old Testament chronology and history. And this gives us those data-rich answers that we so have so desperately needed in Christianity for a long time. Now, some of our listeners might be wondering, okay, so when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, did they find the corrected number of 1,480 then in 1 Kings 6.1? And the answer to that question is no, we are not aware that 1 Kings 6.1 itself did appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls. If it did, then there was no numerical correction there. So it looks like the number was dropped fairly early on in the copying process. Uh, We're not always going to have the original number when it comes to these rare types of copy errors. There are some well-known examples, just very few well-known examples, uh, because the Bible is remarkably well-preserved. But there are a few places where we do not seem to have the original number. So there are no extant manuscripts at this time that show the corrected number, but there's a host of evidence to back it up. So for a more thorough explanation of all of this, because it does raise questions, of course, we can't answer everything here on the podcast. You really should download and read the book, A New Approach to the Chronology of Biblical History from Abraham to Samuel. And many questions are addressed in that little volume. It's available for free download. Every, you know, some of the questions like about genealogies and about the secular history, um, et cetera, are addressed in that book. Well, and we keep building our repertoire of things that we're putting out, information on this topic. And you, you may be hearing this for the first time and saying, what? I never, I've never heard that before. Or maybe you've heard some of this and you're questioning it saying, I don't know. Well, great. That's fine. Dig into it some more. We encourage you. This certainly deserves at least a place at the table of discussion of what we are presenting here. So yes, that book, A New Approach, uh, we, we call it a new approach. It's a it's a little book with a big title. What's, right. what's the full title? A new approach to the chronology of biblical history from Abraham to Samuel. Yes. It goes back beyond Abraham now, but when the book was written, he had not yet delved into the question of the flood. But so, it's a concise right. uh, explanation of what we have been giving you here on this podcast. Also, there's a, a video that I did some time back called Are the Ancient Bible Stories Actually True? You're welcome to go online and uh, watch that video where I'm discussing the very real problem of early Old Testament biblical accounts that are oddly missing from the historical records and archaeological finds. In, instead of groping about for answers that heap confusion upon confusion, there is that simple but unexpected path 
to clarity. And uh, I hope that you'll go online and and watch that. If you get our show notes again, there's a link there, or you can go on biblicalchronologist.org or, or our website called truthintime.org uh, and find these articles and these videos. It's more of a layperson's presentation of right. this information. It's a 13-minute video. It'd be well worth your time to watch it and share it. Moving right into our next little segment, I've Got Questions. One person sent the following question through our social media, and this follows right on the heels of what we were just discussing, referring to the missing millennium discovery and the well-known biblical chronology of James Usher. Usher's chronology has been accepted for uh, hundreds of years now. And the question he sent was, how did Usher miss this? Right. And the most probable answer is that men in Usher's time were not dealing with the issues like we are dealing with today uh, due to modern advancements in technology. It it may be a surprise for some people to learn that it was the 1600s that Usher lived. Usher's chronology comes from from the 1600s, so they didn't have the uh, archaeology we have today. They didn't have the technology. They didn't they have the ability. They certainly didn't have radiocarbon dating. That's right. So he would not have known that there were any problems in the dating. It's only in recent times, beginning uh, around the 1920s, 1930s, and, and on, that we have had the ability to get into the dirt like we can today and actually uncover and date these accounts in the Bible. So that's the answer. And then the conflict arises uh, that he would not have known about at that time. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we talk about these things in our Truth in Time ministry, and we would love to come to your church, to your meeting, as we have said in other podcasts. We are scheduled for a number of meetings this spring and this summer, and we would love to have you come and visit with us and see us if you're nearby. Let me just give you quickly uh, where we're going to be with our itinerary here. We were at Grace Baptist Church in Attica, Indiana on April the 16th. On May the 21st, we will be at Crossroads Free Will Baptist Church in uh, Effingham, Illinois. On June the 10th, we'll be at Hayworth First Baptist Church in Hayworth, Illinois. And then on June the 25th, we'll be at Tolono United Methodist Church in Tolono, Illinois. And if you would like to inquire about bringing our family to your church or event, send us a note, uh, email us, send us a text or something, get a hold of us, and we would love to work that out. We so enjoy taking our family out and being at these different events, meeting people and seeing what God is doing in their lives and being able to share our music as a family. Yes, we do. All right. Our quote of note this month, it comes from an ad that we placed in a Christian publication some time back. It's a picture. Again, if you have the show notes there, if you get the email, you can see the picture of two men. One looks like a very ancient person. One looks like a modern preacher holding a Bible. Anyhow, the quote says, Noah was a godly preacher. He lived 950 years. Billy Graham was a godly preacher. He lived 99 years. Why the difference? This is truly the essence of the question behind the aging research here. Illustrated in that simple quote and simple uh, graphic design there, the difference between these lifespans. And that takes us right into Aging 101. Last month, 
we learned that aging is fundamentally a vitamin deficiency disease of two previously unknown vitamins. So today we're going to hit lesson five, the example of vitamin C and scurvy. We want to consider in this series some examples of other vitamin deficiency diseases to help you understand more about what they are like so you can see how aging can be due to lack of these two previously unknown vitamins. We are going to start with the well-known vitamin C. We all have heard of vitamin C. We know it's good for our health and we should take it when we have a cold and eat oranges, etc. But uh, what we probably don't know is even the name of the vitamin deficiency disease that you get if you do not have vitamin C. And that is the disease called scurvy. If your deficiency of vitamin C is serious enough, you will get scurvy. It is a serious form of disease and suffering. The loss of life due to scurvy has been enormous in the history of our world, and we need to be uh, more educated on these these things. In the picture there in the show notes Steve opened with was a beautiful painting of a ship on some beautiful ocean waters, and the sails are up there in the wind. But the story of scurvy, which is a very heavy sad topic is related in even with that beautiful painting three times more sailors died from scurvy during the age of discovery than the number of soldiers who were killed in the civil war that's an amazing thought you just got to stop and take that in for a minute three times more sailors died than men who were killed in the civil war from a vitamin deficiency disease from scurvy yeah Scurvy has been called the price of the age of discovery. This is when voyages were being able to be taken that took months. Um, They were pushing forward with the discovery of the new world and more uh, knowledge about the globe. But what a price to pay. What a costly time in history that was in the terms of human life. Because this mysterious and dreaded illness would come upon these men um, as they were out at sea. It was uh, between 1500 to 1800, scurvy was the leading cause of naval, naval deaths. Killed more sailors than all the battles, storms, and other diseases that they would face at sea combined from the 16th to 18th centuries. As I mentioned, this was the first time that ships began in cro- crossing entire oceans, which took months. Of course, the men at sea did not have fresh fruits and vegetables on these long voyages. They uh, had to eat food that could be preserved in whatever methods they had at that time. And so uh, their body was deprived of the vitamin C you would normally get from eating fresh fruits and vegetables that would have been available to them on land. At the time, all they knew was that the men going out on these long voyages would get sick. Uh, The majority of the men, they would get really sick. They would even die. The men on these ships suffered terribly 
and tremendously. I really could hardly stand to read about this to get prepared to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, if you want some horror reading, go read about scurvy. Yes. Some of these ships. A horror story. Yeah. You know, living at that time. I mean, that could have been my husband. That could have been my sons on those voyages. Physically, they began to become emaciated. Their bodies were not able to replace the collagen because of the lack of vitamin C, which they didn't know was what was happening. Collagen is the glue of the body's cells. And so it would begin to lead to tissue breakdown in the body. They would get gum disease. Their gums would turn black. Uh, They would have a terrible stench to their body as they were suffering from this. Adult patients with scurvy are known today to suffer from fatigue, bleeding gums, joint pain, shortness of breath, slow healing wounds, and potentially fatal heart problems. So you mean people today still can get scurvy? Well, sure. How does that? I could get it. You could get it if we took vitamin C out of our diet. Right. Um, And in some countries, they will still be treating and, and helping people suffering with this. One British expedition in the 1740s out in the Pacific Ocean had originally 2,000 men on board, and they lost 1,300 of those men to illness, which would have been scurvy. The commander said, his name was George Anson, he said, almost the whole crew was afflicted by symptoms, including a luxuriancy of fungus flesh, putrid gums, and the most dreadful terrors. And this is the thing. I mean, vitamin deficiencies can affect you mentally just as much as physically. Many sailors suffered a strange dejection of the spirits and they lay immobile, while others who finally got the resolve to get up out of their hammock this is quoting the captain said have died before they could well reach the deck which i can only assume was related with the heart problems that they were suffering with you know it's pretty well known that many sailors at sea could exhibit b- bizarre behavior there's right. some crazy tales that captain we can cook and others yes the rhyme of the ancient mariner and right. um others moby dick what was that captain ahab Yes. It's a fiction story, but same idea that a sailor is seemingly going crazy. Yeah, out of his mind. Right. So some of this is believed not just to be due to the vitamin C deficiencies, but also other vitamin deficiencies. These guys didn't know what was going on. Uh, Different theories emerged. Various treatments were were tried. Looking back, we know they only needed a simple molecule called vitamin C ascorbic acid. And we now know that vitamin C is the anti-scurvy vitamin. It was not identified as a vitamin. Vitamin C was not identified until 1928 uh, to actually know what the molecule was. Hmm. But they were able to solve the problem much earlier than that. So let's talk about it. How did they solve the problem? Well, They had a lot of wacky and weird ideas about what the problem was. One proposed treatment was giving these men like an immersion in a in a bath of like soil turf. It was I think the theory was they're suffering from the bad air out here at sea and they just need to get like the experience of being back on land again. So sometimes they would lay a piece of turf over top of a patient's mouth to try to 
give him whatever he was missing from from being on land. Of course, that treatment was not effective. Hmm. Uh, There were some other downright disgusting treatments. Exercise was proposed as a treatment. Now, here's something, speaking of disgusting, the men who ate the rats on the ship, which I don't know why they would have been eating the rats, but, I mean, there's been some hard times in the history of our world. They were protected from scurvy by eating the rats, uh, but they didn't know the correlation at the time. But a rat makes its own vitamin C. So rats on the ship had vitamin C. If you ate a rat, you were protected from scurvy um, because of that vitamin C entering your body. So there was a man, James Lind, was the first person to really prove the efficacy of citrus juice as a treatment. And that was in 1747. There's a long volume that he wrote, and in there he tried all kinds of treatments, and in there... There are some pages dedicated to the citrus juice Which treatment. Is why we call them the limeys, right? Yeah, limes, lemons. And you know, they had to figure it out. Limes don't have as much vitamin C as other citrus does, if I remember right from my reading. So sometimes it was more effective, sometimes it wasn't as effective, and it was just a process of trial sure. and error. It always is. But you know what is so sad is that the British Royal Navy did not officially implement the citrus juice for the sailors until 50 years after James Lind began to document um, that it was effective. Why is it so hard for us 50 years! Why, why is it so hard for us to step out of our box and to put away preconceived ideas? It's just, it's very hard for us to do that. And people suffer yeah. because of it. 50 years would have been a loss of many more lives. Um, Historians still debate, you know, why the Admiralty did not act upon Dr. Lin's discovery earlier. What I read also was that the people with the louder voices did not hold to that idea. So they were more prominent and propagating false solutions to the problem. So as we consider the suffering and the loss of life uh, due to something really so simple in the end, I just hope that we can learn from history and not repeat it. And you know, you again, that point, something so simple in the end. This is the way truth always seems to be. We, we have people who conjure up all kinds of thoughts and ideas and, and perceptions, and, and fine, that's, that's, that's great. But if it's truth, usually it comes down to something very simple. That's the case with the vitamin deficiency disease. That's the case with missing chronology. Yeah. We, we're talking about a, a simple one correction to be made that solves a myriad of problems. In this, we're talking about a simple vitamin deficiency that completely cures a disease. So it's just an evidence of truth. Agreed. So if your children don't want to eat their broccoli, you could put pictures of people with scurvy <laughs> all around them. <laughs> Terrorize them. <laughs> <laughs> you better eat your broccoli, kid. <laughs> Arr. So as we consider aging in the light of a vitamin deficiency disease and the research that has been done and is ongoing, and of course there's much more to come as the research continues to progress, 
But uh, we do hold something in our hand now that has the potential to reduce suffering, sustain life, and we need to act upon it. All right, moving into a little bit more pleasant territory now, uh, we will bring you to Helen's view with her interview with Steve. I thought you might enjoy getting to know Steve Hall a little better, so I'm going to interview him for today's podcast. A little background on Steve. Steve is in charge of communications for Ardsma Research and Publishing, with a main emphasis on the work of the biblical chronologist. And of course, Steve is the voice of the Biblical Chronologist Messenger podcast, along with his wife, Jennifer. Steve is my son-in-law and married to our oldest child, Jennifer. They live just down the road from us on the old Mulberry Lane Farm homestead, where Gerald and I lived for almost 30 years. Steve is a man of many talents. He is an accomplished musician. He does the artwork for our books, as well as designing art for the websites and promotional materials. He does the groundwork for this podcast, as well as all the editing that is required for the audio portion. Steve is a godly father to some pretty amazing children, who also, of course, happen to be my grandchildren. He does daily devotions, Bible reading and singing, with his family, passing along the heritage both he and Jennifer have been given. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children and grandchildren walk in the truth. 3 John 1 verse 4. Now on to the interview. Well, welcome, Steve. This is a familiar territory for you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your childhood, the places you lived, and what your parents did for a living, etc. Sure. And hey, I'm excited to be interviewed here. This is, I think, maybe my first interview that I've ever done. And so this is fun. But sure, my childhood, I was born in a place called Waynesboro, Virginia. Um, My father uh, was and is a pastor. He has been a Baptist pastor all of my life. He pastored in Pennsylvania for about a decade or so. And then um, he has been in Virginia at the Valley Baptist Church there for um, about 37 years now, I believe. I was privileged to work with Dad for about almost 20 years at Valley Baptist, and uh, what a blessing that those years were. My mom has been a pastor's wife and a homemaker all of my life. Um, I'm the oldest of five children. I'm the best looking. I'm the <laughs> smartest. But yeah, that's that's a little bit about my childhood. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your salvation when you became saved. and Sure. Um, my testimony is similar to many who have grown up in Christianity, who have uh, been blessed and privileged to have heard the gospel all their life. I vaguely remember praying a prayer with my mom when I was very young, but I was very fearful uh, as a child of not being saved. And um, uh, when I was probably about 12 years old or so, I came to terms with what salvation really meant. Um, I realized that it's about your faith in Christ and that my faith was in the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for my sin. It was due to nothing that I could earn or merit on my own. And I'm very thankful. I'm thankful for the sensitivity that I had when I was young, um, even though I had fears, but that my heart was tender to it and that I um, had not hardened my heart to the gospel before I came to terms with it in my own mind. And I'm thankful for parents who taught me the truth of the gospel, who led me uh, to Christ. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very common testimony, but yes. still always refreshing and thrilling to hear just the same. Yeah, amen. 
Uh, So where did you go to college and what is your actual degree? I attended Pensacola Christian College when I graduated from high school. I didn't know exactly where I was going to go. And then the Lord led me to PCC in 1994. That seems like a long time ago now. (laughs) And I graduated in 1999. Uh, I graduated with a degree in music. Uh, Vocal proficiency was my actual uh, degree. And I minored in biblical studies. It was at PCC that I met my wife, uh, Jennifer. And it was in the music program that, that I met her. What was the first time you met Jennifer? What was the actual experience there? Sure. I Again, I was a vocal major. Um, I needed a pianist, and uh, Jennifer was a piano major. It works out. Uh, <laughs> I had a list of pianist names. My teacher gave me this list because I needed one for a, my vocal class. And um, her name, if I remember correctly, was at the very bottom of the list. So I, I got through this list one by one. Everybody was busy. Everybody was doing other things and couldn't help me. I was probably late in uh, finding a pianist. Got down to the last name, this Jennifer Ardsma uh, girl that I did not know. Mm-hmm. And um, when I contacted her, she happened to be available. And the rest is history. Okay. So what did you do after you graduated from Pensacola Christian College? Jennifer and I went to work at a church um, near Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I was an assistant pastor there for uh, a little while. This is where we had our first child. And then eventually, I never dreamed it would happen, but God then eventually called us up to Virginia to my home church where my father was. We ended up spending almost the next 20 years there. Yes. So we neglected to mention that you and Jennifer got married right after you graduated. That's right, yes. Then you went together to, to the church Jacksonville, in Jackson. Florida. Yes, that's right. And you had Joshua there, your that's first right. baby there. So how many children do you have? And tell us a little bit about what all of them are doing these days. We have been blessed with eight children that the Lord has graciously given to us. And um, Joshua is our oldest. Joshua is getting his master's degree at Bob Jones University. Uh, Ethan is getting married. Uh, actually, this May, he will be our first child to, to get married. Yeah. Very exciting for us. Um, Caitlin is at Bob Jones University as well. She is working on an art major uh, right now. And then we still have uh, five at home, Sam, Toby, Olivia, Annalise, and Micah. And please don't ask me all their ages because they change it on me every you year. You got your names? They got their names pretty good there. <laughs> I did get their names right. Yeah. That's really great. Uh, so you have a big wedding coming up here in a few weeks at Bob Jones University down in Greenville. That's right. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's really very special very time excited. for your family. He's met yeah. a lovely young lady that we're very excited that he's married. And she's also goes to Bob Jones That's University. That's right. That's where they right. met. Yes. Why did you decide to homeschool your children? Jennifer was homeschooled all growing up, uh, as you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I learned much about homeschooling from her when we first met and together. Really, that's really what it was that we uh, decided early on in our marriage, uh, in our dating before marriage, that that was the direction that we wanted to go with our own family. I attended school growing up and public school and some Christian and public school. And and, and definitely my thought was early on that uh, if we could avoid that, that's certainly the way I would rather go. Mm -hmm. And then hearing of homeschooling and her testimony with that definitely solidified that, yep, that's what we want to do. And so 
that's what we did. And so we've been doing ever since. So what are some of the blessings and some of the challenges with homeschooling? Right. Um, obviously, some of the blessings are, well, very practically speaking, the flexibility of being homeschooled and being able to do what the family needs to, to do at any certain day or time, uh, being as consistent as we can, but having that flexibility. Of course, we have complete control over the education that our children receive, and what a blessing that is to have this in this free country, to have this ability to be able to educate my children as I see fit as a parent, mm-hmm. and of course, as Christians, to give them that Christian uh, aspect to the to their education. Um, and boy, there's so many blessings mm-hmm. um, being with the children all day long and mm-hmm. and um, not being away from them. Of course, there are many challenges as well. Nothing's perfect. There's mm-hmm. no perfect situation. It's a lot of work, uh, especially for, for mom mm-hmm. and uh, with everything else that she has going on as well. But we love it. We're blessed to be able to... Mm-hmm. to to have this freedom, and we would recommend it to anybody. Mm-hmm. Great. So what is a book you are currently reading, and can you give us a quote from it that has really impacted you? We love um, C.S. Lewis, and mm-hmm. we have um, uh, are actually in the middle of the Narnia series right now with the kids. Mm-hmm. We just started Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I personally am reading right now Lewis's book called Out of the Silent out of the silent planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never read this before. I read the last one. Um, my mind's gone blank here. Mm-hmm. That hideous strength. Yes. Okay. I've read that hideous strength, but I now I'm going back to the beginning and reading out of the silent planet. And it's now this a, is fiction, right? Fiction yes. space uh, trilogy. Yes. And uh, but yet, of course, Lewis is working in his theology, working yes. in his teaching. So yeah, that's what I'm reading uh, right now. And a quote out of the book. It's something along the lines of, um, I'll just give you the quote, that he's talking to one of the creatures there on the planet, and the creature, they've just been attacked by a, 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 a nasty creature. And anyhow, the quote says, I do not think the forest would be so bright, nor the water so warm, nor love so sweet, if there were no danger in the lakes. Mm. And again, that just sticks out to me because that's a kind of a theme that we've had going here, you know, that it's kind of the same idea of, Nar- of in Narnia. You have uh, Aslan. Mm-hmm. He's, he's good, but he's not safe. Mm. Um, and this is the way that God seems to be, the way God works, that all of his creation even is very good, but it can also be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And following the Lord. There's a danger in it. God's a great storyteller. And in every good story, there's the protagonist and the yes. antagonist. There's yes. good and there's evil and there's danger. Mm-hmm. And so the good wouldn't be nearly as good. The yes. love wouldn't be nearly as sweet as the quote says, the uh, water so warm if there were no danger in the lakes. Right. So, yeah, good. I love that. What did you think of your father-in-law's work when you first heard about it? And I presume that would have been from Jennifer talking to you when you were still in college about sure. what he was doing. Well, really, I mean, I would have thought it quite odd. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I didn't probably give it a whole lot of thought at that time because my thoughts were toward something else. Yes, of course. <laughs> my, uh, toward uh, Jennifer. But yeah, I mean, I, I really, even over the years when we were first married, I... You know, it was kind of there in the background mm-hmm. a bit on the fringe, and mm-hmm. and I would hear things and read things, of course, keeping up with things, but but didn't um, 
didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. And of course, much of it at that time went against some of the doctrines that I held. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would have pushed it aside mm-hmm. and, and thought, well, this is odd. This is different. And I really, it's maybe it's not my battle right now to, to face and, and right. to dig into. So, mm-hmm. so early on, when I first heard, uh, that would have been my, my mentality. Mm-hmm. But as the case is with all newly realized truth, it always seems odd. It, you know, always seems difficult, out of the box, some aspects of it even ludicrous at first. But as you search it out with sincerity, with honesty, putting some preconceived ideas behind you, um, you know, you begin to see it. You begin to understand how all the pieces fit together, how it works. Um, Tell us a little bit about your Truth in Time ministry. Yeah, Truth in Time is the communications wing or arm of our work here at the Biblical Chronologist. And that is what we are calling that ministry where our family goes out and ministers um, in other churches schools or uh, if a group is having a homeschool meeting or any kind of a meeting to try to get the message of the biblical chronologist out. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a website called truthintime.org. So yeah, we our family loves to sing. We've sung for many years. Uh, the Lord blessed us to be able to work with a music ministry to uh, record music and even publish some songs and some musicals. Our children uh, have sung with us as we go out and travel. And so it really was a neat fit to be able to start mm-hmm. this Truth in Time ministry mm-hmm. and be able to get out. We were just in a church this past Sunday uh, in Indiana, uh, sharing the work a bit, singing. So that's what it's all about. That's how it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now that you have been working for ARP and the BC for four years, what is it about the research and work that has made the biggest difference in your life? Sure. Um, And boy, there's so many things that could be said there on that. But really, I think what has stood out to me the most, especially more recently, is that so we are seeing things like longevity of human lives before the flood as a real thing Mm -hmm. in real world history. Mm We are seeing with a front row seat things like manna um, explained now to us as real substance in the real world. We're seeing Egypt obviously destroyed due to the exodus, these events as real world history. Mount Sinai, as described in the scriptures, real world, real world history. We could go on and on. Once you see God's works in the real world the way we're seeing it here, Uh, It really gives you more insight. It gives you more light into God's character, um, how he works, how he has worked in the world. We can have insight into God, of course, through the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can go outside into creation and look around and, and get light and insight in these ways, and we should. But seeing things from the perspective of how the Bible stories actually maybe, quote, went down, Mm -hmm. how how it actually Mm -hmm. happened, Mm -hmm. it gives you a whole new angle, a whole new view of God. You see him for who he really more for who he truly is and how he is truly working wonders within this awesome creation. It, Mm -hmm. It really is bringing 
the mystical, you know, the kind of floaty Mm -hmm. to the real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's all real, but bringing it together, you see it as real world stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not just pie in the sky, as my dad loves to say in the poem. It's real world. Mm -hmm. And so that really is faith strengthening. And it's very, very, it's just a, it's just a whole different angle of God Mm -hmm. that, that you Mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. And so it also gives you kind of a wonder about the future, you know, and Mm -hmm. even, you know, what God, what is God what does he have planned in this world? So to me, that's kind of right now, anyhow, what really has is impacting me. So that present. impacts your everyday walk with the Lord sure. in the sense that God becomes much bigger to you. Right. Much, much more powerful, well, and much maybe, more real. Maybe more, that's what I was going to say, maybe even more real. And really, that's what we need today mm-hmm. in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that's why this ministry here is so important because we have the theology. What we need is the data, yes. which we have been missing for so many decades now, and that's what's here. And that's showing us mm-hmm. that this stuff in the Bible is not a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of fairy tales out there, mm-hmm. a lot of tall tales, but this is real, real history in the real world, mm-hmm. and we have the data now to show it. So it's a blessing to be a part of this ministry. Well, great. Well, thank you, Steve, for this time together. I know you're a busy man, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. Enjoyed it. We've navigated a lot of territory today, and we hope it was helpful to you to think about and ponder. And thanks for sailing along with us here at the BC Messenger. It's been good to be with you. We'll see you in June. The BC Messenger sounds like it should be painted on the side of a ship somewhere. (laughs) A seagoing vessel.